You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome, all you weirdos, islands who walk like men, and everyone rumored to be writing an X title for Tom Brevoort. It is time for your 77th episode of The Weird Dose of X, the mutant member of your Weird Science family of podcasts. I'm your host, Jason, broadcasting from the Wrong Turn Studio, perched high atop stately Weird Science Tower, and here with me from, uh, my notes just say, somewhere very secret, is my man Ruben. Now, Ruben, is there a mysterious woman with you with a green hair <laughs> and sunglasses? Is that, you, you don't have to tell me, you can just like, like yeah. knock twice if, if, I'm, if I'm close. Well, I might be writing a title by uh, <laughs> Tom Brevoort that might, may or may not star Abigail Brandt. I don't know. I'm I mean, still waiting for my confirmation days? email. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, lot of not, not so much confirmation going around, but you know, all sorts of things could be happening once Tom Brevoort takes over. But before then, we do have to finish up you know, this whole Krakoan era, and today we have just two books to talk about. Those books are Dark X-Men number five and X-Men Red number 18. So uh, we're going to get right to that because I don't know where you are. Well, I, you're in the secret place, but where I am, we have some winds and branches flying around. There's a trampoline blowing around Providence, I hear. That's exciting. So we're going to try to get this through before anything crashes into my power. So here we are. Things sound a little late when I push the button, but there it is. Uh, Dark X-Men number five of five, The Mercy Seat. Written by Steve Fox, art by Jonas Scharf, colors by Frank Martin, letters by Clayton Cowles, and designed by, of course, Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. Now, The Mercy Seat, Ruben, does that phrase have any resonance for you? No. So it, I don't believe in mercy. <laughs> so I, it makes me think of two things. There's a, a song. I, I know Johnny Cash sings, and I think it was written by somebody else. Uh, but it, the song is about someone going to the electric chair. So that's like the modern conception of it. But uh, going way, way back, it actually means it's the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. Like, you know, from the Bible and or from, you know, Indiana Jones, depending on what you believe in. Uh, but the little the Ark of the Covenant has this spot that's supposed to be like where God manifests most physically and literally on earth is right in this spot on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is, of course, is the box that contains, uh, among other things, like the original Ten Commandments. So I don't know exactly what that has to do with the story of this book, but it's, it's a cool sounding title. Now, we were starting to kind of get into this book, especially the supporting cast with these cool subplots boiling along. Uh, let's see. We had uh, the relationship between M-Plate and Azazel. We learned that M-Plate had some sort of a family debt, and that's why he was being so subservient. We're curious about the details there. Uh, and speaking of Azazel, we were wondering, would he learn that Nightcrawler isn't actually his kid? You know, that whole X-Men Blue Origins thing. How would he react when he gets this news? Uh, Havoc. He was really badly injured way back in issue one and was only being held together by Maddie's magic. It seemed to be always like on the verge of just falling apart. He had this like specter of death around him. What's going to happen with him? Uh, we had this weird mentor-mentee relationship between Maddie and Faint, which seems like the kind of thing that was going to end up very, very badly. So here in the final issue of this mini, where do all those cool subplots end up? Basically nowhere. Uh, am I being too hard on this, or did they all kind of just flop? Yeah, they left a lot of um, plot points open, but 
I wouldn't call it a flop. That's not the way I would characterize it. Um, in my mind, this is still a new writer that's kind of trying to get his feet, but he is asking interesting questions and some of the stuff does get resolved. And he has a new book, so um, I'm at least going to... This is maybe a cop-out because you should maybe finish all of your plots in a miniseries in the miniseries, but maybe some of these things will carry on into the uh, Dead X-Men book that we know is coming out. Maybe. I, I get the feeling that, that 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 book seems not all that connected to Dark X-Men, although it you know has the same kind of feel to the title, Dead X-Men, Dark X-Men. I think it's something totally different, but m- maybe, maybe Havoc will show up there because – uh, so, and the final issue of this mini, uh, Azazel, the, he dies, and Plate just kind of pieces out, and we never learn what that debt was. Yeah, that's the stuff that's weak. I, there was a debt not explained. Uh, like you say, Azazel's. The death of Azazel I actually thought was kind of funny because of the um, uncanny, wait, no, it was X Men Blue Origins or whatever yes. the hell that thing was called. Yes. <laughs> so they retcon his uh, importance, and then they're like, okay, now you're dead. <laughs> it's like a one-two punch. Yeah, I, I would have liked to see him learn about the new retcon, though, because the the whole idea was that oh, we have to make him think he has this kid, and that for various reasons, Destiny says is going to prevent him from trying to take over the world. And once that's taken away, how does that affect him? Doesn't matter. He's dead now. Uh, the characters who aren't dead, I mean, Havoc. He seems he seems fine now. I mean, his injuries aren't even really mentioned in this issue. Well, he still has the shaky-looking speech bubbles, or at least the letterer remembers that something's been up with him. But he had this whole, oh, uh, didn't like who, who who looked at him and said his life force is all crazy. I'm like, his, his whole he just seemed to be just generally falling apart. Like there was leading up to something, and that, that didn't go anywhere at all. Yeah, she's still holding them together, but yeah. Uh, we do have a thing that happens between Faint and Maddie, so that mentor-mentee relationship does get brought up. Eh, it felt kind of throwaway to me. Anyway, let's get to the actual story, and I'll quit complaining, and maybe Ruben will convince me that there's enough cool stuff in here to raise my score. So, last time out, the Goblin Queen from Battleworld made her way into the Limbo Embassy and started Wrecking House. Officially, she's working for Orcus, but in reality, her two Orcus handlers are mostly working for her. She wants our Maddie's Mercy Crown, the spooky limbo version of a Cerebro helmet. In this issue, she takes the helmet, she breaks the horns off her own head so the helmet will fit, okay, uh, she jams it on her head there. She invites our Maddie to join her, kind of a Darth Vader at the end of Empire Strikes Back kind of thing, right? Join me and we'll rule the galaxy together as Madeline and other Madeline. Uh, while this is going on, the other characters, you know, they fight each other some more. The spooky lady Orcus handler, who's Agent Valens, if you don't remember that, don't worry, uh, she gets killed by a Zazzle who bamfs her into a wall. Then Mplate, who's fighting with the Banff dragon, tosses that dragon onto Azazel, and I know I say his name eight different ways, but Azazel Azazel gets ripped in half, dead. I don't really know why he didn't just bamf away, and why did he just kind of stand there and let the dragon kill him? Did, was he just worn out from something? <laughs> what, what what do you think happened there? I, I was kind of okay with that. I mean, maybe it just moves super fast, and it also is a teleporter of its own, right? It has the I exact guess. same powers as him. I, granted, it doesn't know where he's going. Probably not. But I'm just yeah, going to chalk it up. I know he has a few lines, but I'm going to chalk it up to he was being a jerk to Emplate and kind of had the dragon thrown on him. Mm-hmm. Maybe so, it would have been better if they didn't have lines, right? If they just kind of made it fast, flip it onto him, and then it just bites him. But I think it would have made more sense that way. So, M-Plate now just walks 
basically walks out of the book. Uh, Gambit says, hey, Emplate, where are you going? And uh, Emplate just says, elsewhere. My family's debt is settled. Which settled feels like uh, you've paid off the debt. But he didn't pay off the debt. He kind of semi-murdered the guy who he had a debt <laughs> to, which is not the yes. same thing. Yeah. So I, that again, that feels like maybe we're supposed to go in a different direction, but I don't know for whatever reason they had to just wrap it up here. Yeah. I don't know this character that well, but in my mind, it was kind of a villain's move where he's just like, the only reason I'm here is because I had to be here. So peace out. Yeah. I was hoping it was more interesting than that, but maybe that's all it is. Some gross weird stuff happens with gross weird zero. Uh, he becomes merged with that little girl robot LCD as well as with Logan about Albert. So the other spooky orcus handle, handler agent Kroll, he fires LCD at zero Loganbot with like a bazooka. I don't know what he thought was going to happen, but he seems to be very dead. It didn't really give him a a, a, a real moment there, but it kind of seems like, oh, agent Kroll, he's he's reduced to like a stain on the ground at this moment. So both of these orcus yeah. characters, they're, they're, they're gone. They're not, they're not coming back. Yeah. Not a very good strategy against this character, but maybe they don't know what he does. I didn't know this character either, right, until we've had mm-hmm. this book. Yeah, and I know Albert the Loganbot and LCD have a history, so maybe people who are really into that history are happy to see them reunited. Yeah, so I, I didn't just- understand how they got out. It just kind of seemed like there's this brief moment when uh, he's not in control of the body and they like cut the head off. Is that it? And they separate himself, but I don't understand how that would like unmerge themselves from the uh, fused I, I think, body. I think Zero just lets them go at the end. I think it's in the epilogue. He's like, okay, this book's over. I guess you can be on your way now, is what I took from it. So at this point, it looks like Maddie might be thinking of taking the other Goblin Queen up on her whole partnership offer. But then Faint, who remembers his polymorph, she makes herself look like the original Madeline Pryor from like way back at the beginning before there was any of this mutant Jean Grey situation. I think it's she was a pilot, right? That's why she had that uniform. I don't remember her role. I've actually never read that story. I know. I, I think that was, was her <laughs> deal. So I guess this is supposed to bring Maddie back to her senses, and then she rejects the Goblin Queen's offer and in one panel just slices the Goblin Queen's head clean off, which really ends this threat. Yeah, go ahead. That's correct. I, but I think it's a little different than that. I think it's more along the lines of the the Battle World's Goblin Queen is like, hey, we're always meant to suffer and you're going to suffer again here and nobody trusts you. And then Faint does the like, I'm you thing and, you know, tries to appeal to her and it's sort of manipulative. And so then our Madeline is like, oh, you're sort of my protege, right? Like you've decided to be manipulative to try to advance your own agenda. and I'm inspiring people and that <laughs> that makes me mm-hmm. happy, right? I don't need to um, partner up with this evil witch, like my agenda is is kind of working. It did make me think a bit of the end of that Jean Grey miniseries where kind of looking at alternate versions of herself, that whole argument over who are you? Should you be this? Should you be that? And then, oh, I should learn to be myself. And that's kind of the the, the typical yeah, it, it is. Ex- I just appreciate that she, her, what appeals to her is having trained another young mutant to manipulate others to get your ends. <laughs> I, I, I like your idea more. I don't think the book sells it as well as you do. So Yeah. Well, when she says, oh, Carmen's such a trite and manipulative move, mm-hmm. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> uh, that's where I – I mean, it's two panels, but that's kind of where yeah, I and, – And that – for the whole big threat of this book to be wrapped up in those two panels, it seems awful quick and awful like, oh, is that – 
is that it? Are we done now? Because from yeah. here on out, it's just epilogue panels, epilogue pages, right? What I yeah, what I would say that was weak is the series to me didn't because there were just too many characters, right? And they were trying to tell you who all the characters were, and then suddenly we're at the end. I didn't really get the sense that um, Maddie was trying to train Faint to be her protege, and that she really wanted proteges. I mean, we saw a few panels of them talking, right, and being mm-hmm. affiliated, but I just didn't see that yeah, as like something that Maddie really wanted. Time. Yeah, and it didn't even register to me that that was like one of her objectives. Well, that's that's how the main story ends. So here's here's kind of the epilogue. So Gambit and Faint. They leave the embassy and join the other X-Men down in the Morlock tunnels. So when do you think this happens? Is this before or after that whole end of X-Men 29 when Kate and company find the place wrecked and bloody? You think you think Gambit and Faint are off with, uh, uh, who was that, Sink and uh, Laura? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm guessing they don't align very well. I think it'd have to be after because I don't remember seeing Faint in the tunnels when Miss Marvel was talking to them. I suppose they could be arriving like while uh, Ms. Marvel and company are off in Latveria. Oh, yeah, because you don't maybe, see her down here. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll find out in the next X-Men issue. Who knows? Uh, let's see. What else happens? The two robots, Albert and LCD, they kind of head off on their own to be picked up by maybe some other writer down the line. The Banff dragon, he stays in the embassy. I wonder how Nightcrawler would feel about another version of him living as Maddie's pet. Yeah. Very weird. I don't and get also, why the little demon thing is peeing on him. It looks like the little demon, like little demon Cupid kind of thing is peeing in the Banff dragon's water dish. Like, yeah. is this this what the Banff dragon drinks or eats is demon your It's, I don't know. I don't get it. Very odd choice of art there. And it's eating Azazel's bone. Is that the idea? It's a red bone. It's a red, it could be Azazel. That's, that's not a bad guess. I don't know what kind of bone it is, but yeah. Definitely enjoying chewing on some kind of a bone. Yeah. Which, if it is him chewing on the bone of his alternate universe's fake, it's complicated. <laughs> I don't know. We see Archangel's still dead. Yeah, Archangel is still quite dead. We see his skull there at the bottom of the ocean with a, a crab walking on it. Yeah, so some of those, those Morlocks who decided they didn't really want to hang around with the X-Men anymore are still happily sailing the seas and cruising around. We do see M-Plate is off to his old ways of, I guess, leeching energy from a homeless guy. It's not good. Uh, <laughs> and then we see that uh, that flower lady in Mexico is still also hanging off on her own. And then we get a final page where Maddie admits to Havoc that yeah, I made a mistake trying to make myself a leader, which I guess she only means was a bad idea for her to lead an X-Men team because she's still quite determined to remain the queen leader of limbo. So that that kind of point moral seems a little muddied. And then we get this whole, yeah, I am who I am. I'm once and forever the Goblin Queen. Uh, and that's where we get the end with a question mark, which is Jim's favorite way to end any, any series. Yes. <laughs> I thought this was kind of a pretty big letdown. Why did Steve Fox even set up all these cool subplots just to drop them? Uh, I'm, you'll, you wonder if he had a different plan and editorial made him change things, but I have no way of, you know, even considering that what happened. Well, he killed Archangel and he killed Azazel. That's, Maybe uh, that was the mandate. And he made Faint a more interesting character who is now a villain, sort of, or at least she's self-interested. I'm curious if other writers will, you know, continue to portray uh, I, that. I way. doubt. I think she's still going to be kind of a, oh, naive, goody two-shoes, you know, that that kind of a audience insert character. That, that's what I expect. We'll, we'll see. If, Again, she may not even pop up in a book for a while. She's kind of a – she hasn't been around very long, and this is only the second book she's really been in. 
Oh, maybe. Uh, why do you think the Goblin Queen was just so foolish as to leave herself that open to the other Maddie killing her so easily? She already had what she wanted. She had the Mercy Crown. Why was she even so hot to have a partner? It didn't seem like the kind of a thing a Goblin Queen would want. It didn't seem like she should have been that easy to kill. Yeah. Is there an explanation there or just, oh, we're kind of out of pages and it has to end? <laughs> Is that the only reason? Because I, it, it felt unsatisfying that she just went out like just that. Just got sliced and that was it. She seemed convinced that she was going to get her less spooky looking version to join her. But I don't even know why she wanted her. She felt like she had everything she needed. She even had given up her mutant powers. Like, I don't even need those mutant powers anymore. I have this amazing magic ability. I now have this uh, spooky cerebral helmet. I've killed the people who were, or the people who are keeping me captive in Orcus. They're dead. Yeah. I don't know why she left well, herself wide open like that. Madlands are always lonely. Maybe she she needed some. Now, company. if she made a play for havoc, that would have been more interesting, I think. And then he kills her. Yeah, I, I kind of like that ending better. Yeah, I mean, which would have undercut one of the points of this book is to show our world's Maddie being, you know, powerful and self sufficient. So that would have undercut that. But I I just think having her interested in havoc would have been more interesting than. You and me, we're the same. Let's, hey, sister, sister, we're, we'll rule the world together. I don't think she'd want Yeah. That. Well, she's like, we don't have to be alone anymore. Maybe. Again, again, the way you, you sell it, I think, is better than the way the book sold it. <laughs> uh, the art continues to be pretty good, you know, dark and gross in a way that matches the dark and gross stuff in the story. Yeah. I'm going to be critical again of some of the faces. Sink right there at the end. He looks like he's about 63 years old. <laughs> uh, his his face is just really saggy. Maybe he's had a rough time. I don't know what's yeah. going on, but doesn't look like like uh, like sync to me. But the art is not to me this book's weakness at all. This book is an example of again I've said it a bunch of times. Endings are hard, and I tend to not like them. We had such high hopes where all these subplots would end up, and for me at least, none of those hopes were realized. Uh, a trait learn to be yourself. Moral of an ending felt like a cop out. Yeah, I, I hope that Steve Fox's next book, that Dead X-Men, I hope it has a better plan for an ending. But for me, Dark X-Men number five gets a mm, 5.8 out of 10. Did not mm. like it. Ouch. Do not recommend. <laughs> Ouch. I mean, I'm not going to go much higher. I was just going to say it was a six. But um, yeah, I think everything you say is fair. I, I enjoy the characters in here. I enjoy some random deaths. <laughs> and uh, I'm a big fan. I mean, you've probably figured out I enjoy like bitchy female characters so uh which yeah they can Maddie be good but i don't like it when those characters just turn out to be oh i'm a strong female character the end you know i, I like <laughs> ones that actually stay bad we stay enjoying them because we dislike them not like not with this kind of you know yeah it, it just just felt like a cop-out to me it felt very bland i will say i would take madeline any day over our traditional Jean Grey. She's so much less annoying to me. <laughs> Just mm, as that's a, an interesting debate. I, interesting debate. I understand her her motivation a lot more. And even though she is a baddie, I always kind of wish for the best for her and Havoc. But um, and I don't want to see her redeemed as a hero. I like her as kind of a leaning bad. But sometimes more villains should be left to be villains. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need her to be like take over the world villain either. Like I'm perfectly happy with her just being like the nasty ruler of limbo. I think that's a fine way to have her. And then occasionally, yeah, curious where she has problems. Curious if she's going to play a part in the whole bring down Orcus part of the the story. I mean, she could. She's got this outpost on Earth, so see if she's in 
Fall of the House of X, Rise of the Powers of X, all that good stuff. Now it's on to what is clearly the actual big book of the week. This is X-Men Red number 18, The Mended Land, which is the final book of X-Men Red. Been going for a while. Kind of the end as far as we can tell. Well, not quite the end, but the end so far of Al Ewing's Krakoa side of things. Uh, the title, of course, is a reference to Arako being called the Broken Land. Here it's the Mended Land. So we'll see if that pays off. Written by Al Ewing, art by Yildare Chinar, colors by Federico Blee, letters by Ariana Mayer, and design once again by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So another ending, getting a lot of those as we kind of head into this last bit of Krakoa. I did think this one was a bit more satisfying than in Dark X-Men, although I Ruben, I know you're at least as disappointed as I am at one particular missing piece, who is, of course, no Abigail Thanriaguaxis brand. Yeah, I'm not just disappointed. I'm actually getting worried now. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of an ambiguous ending when Fisher King and her met. I think he was like, your, your time is at an end or something like that. Now I'm worried yeah. like there was some kind of behind the scenes implied murder. So yeah, he sealed her away in some storage room looking place. The captions told us was just somewhere very secret. And his actual last words were, you are an enemy of Arako, And for our enemies, there is only destruction, destruction of all that you are. And at the end of that road is what comes next. So really threatening and then vague at the end about, oh, something's coming next. So if anyone's going to let her out of that room, you would think it'd be Fisher King. And uh, I don't think he is going to be letting her out of that room anytime soon. I do have I have some hope for you. Uh, are you sitting down at the moment? I'm ready. Okay, good. Give me hope. Uh, there is some preview art going around of a future issue. This is an official Marvel preview, none of that rumor stuff. It's one of those things where you just, you just see the art, no dialogue, no text, no nothing. And in one of those pages coming up in the next couple months, it does look like you see Abigail Brand on panel. Now, it, all I know is it looks like her. It could turn out to be a flashback, a life model decoy, alternate universe, <laughs> some Marvel nonsense. But yes. you see green hair, sunglass lady on panel. Okay. Thank goodness. Oh, good. Otherwise? Otherwise, you're out? Yeah, I'm packing up my toys and I'm, <laughs> I'm leaving the playground. Well, uh, so turning away from Abigail Brand and onto less important things like the fate of an entire planet. Uh, let's recall where we are. Genesis is being influenced by the Annihilation Staff. The forces of Genesis are fighting to take Mars, Arako away from the forces of Storm, and Genesis is pretty clearly winning. In cultural terms, Genesis wants the Iraqi to maintain their commitment to war, while Storm wants to help guide the Iraqi toward a more peaceful, cooperative existence. Very much like a Sparta versus Athens kind of a feel to it. Genesis's forces were heading towards the Autumn Island, where they look like they're about to finish off what's left of Storm's army. And then Apocalypse shows up, and at the end of the last issue, we did some magic-y, magic -y stuff uh, focused on Storm that made a chunk of land turn into a new island that walks, one whose name is yet another anagram of those same letters as Krakoa and Arako and Okara. This one's called Kaorak. Uh, now, Ruben, what did you think of that name, Kaorak? When I first saw it, I didn't even realize <laughs> that it was a living, walking, independent island. So this did not register for me as that big of a deal. Um, but it now should that, be huge, right? Yeah, yeah. Now that I understand that this is a thing, it's fine. I mean, it it's an amalgam of Arako and uh, the other one, Krakoa. 
So it, it works for me, but yeah, I, it's not. A, it's going to take me a really long time before I say Kaorak with a sort of like confidence that I know that that's the right name for the island. Now, if it were me, I would have come up with a different name because you already have islands that start with K and A and O. I would have gone with the R, right? Make it make it different. It's, it's easier to keep characters straight if their names start with like different letters. At least that for me it is. So I would have gone with maybe uh, Rakoka. Rayokak? I don't know. I'd have to. I'd have to mess with some Scrabble titles for for a minute or two. But I, I, I would have gone with an R. Doesn't really matter. I don't think Kaorak Rakoka is going to really be a a thing going forward. Yeah. Well, stop saying Rakoka, or that's what I'm going to think the name is. <laughs> oh well, maybe that'll that'll be the the fourth island that walks. Okay. Anyway, the main forces start clashing with each other. The two islands that walk are fighting like giant Rock'em Sock'em robots. And off in the Morrowlands, John Ironfire is fighting the remaining 99 of the White Swords 100. So those are like the three strands of this story. But let's stick with John for a second. Uh, there's definitely a relationship between John Ironfire and the White Sword. And some people read that as romantic. Some people read it as just friendship. I think Ewing leaves it open to be read either way. Uh, the White Sword, aka Blue, is completely under the control of Genesis and Annihilation, which we saw happen in that before the fall Heralds of X one shot. So John is really here to save his friend. And to do so, he'll need to kill 99 of his other friends. But I guess White Sword could just resurrect them all again afterwards, to, if, if he's still alive. Which is the same kind of technique that White Sword used back in X of Tens, right? Send the forces ahead of him in ones and twos, tire out your opponents, knowing you can always bring your guys back. Yeah, I would say these 99 must be pretty lame. Because they get their butt kicked pretty easily, yeah. and then I would also say it's it's weird to see Iron Fire just get to one because I think I think Gorgon actually didn't make it that far. I think he got killed, or maybe maybe he did, but he was doing really well. I think he got this. A bunch of them got sent all at once because yeah. the Iraqi side realized, oh heck, we're giving up another point every time one of these guys dies. So we can't stop screwing around, White Sword, just make this over with. So I think, so you I think, think this that's is maybe a one on one duel, one through 99. Probably more onesies, twosies. But again, these other White Sword soldiers should also be badasses, right? They've been fighting with this guy for, I don't Thousands know, decades, centuries, who knows? Yes. So yeah, we know John Ironfire has these special like, fire iron powers, but. Well, his blood is, can be fused into metal, right? And we saw in the, Sins of Sinister Realm that he can basically give himself like an internal shield, which is fine. But I'm, I am curious, like what these are mutants, right? They're not like 99 dudes that are just hanging out. Like they all have powers, presumably. And they've had, like you said, thousands of years to like figure out how to use those powers to be warriors. We see him kill like the first two and then we go away and we come back and he kills like the last one. And that's all we see. And, and once he's killed off all the other 99, John asks the White Sword one more time to switch sides. Uh, and one more time, White Sword says, no, Genesis is right, which is a phrase we, we hear a lot. And now it's one-on-one. -on -one. White Sword has his sword back now for, for reasons we'll get to in a moment. And this sword has a quality that it is, quote, a pure function, the act of cutting, whatever that means. So I guess it's like a Ginsu knife, right? It can cut through a tin can and then still slice <laughs> smoothly through a tomato. That's all I got. Yes. Oh, by the way, Ginsu knives were invented, or at least the marketing was, in Rhode Island. And the street known as Ginsu Way, its official name, where that marketing firm was, is like a mile and a half from my house. So often I, I cut through on Ginsu Way, which makes me smile. Anyway. 
So John here knows the secret of the sword. Uh, as the sword descends towards him edge first, he claps his hands together and catches it by the sides. Uh, should that work? Should it be that easy? Seems kind of easy, but we'll go with it. Uh, he gives White Sword a spiked knee to the groin. Ouch. Steals the sword from him and slices White Sword in half. A White Sword will still heal from this like Wolverine or Deadpool, but not if J John stays there and kind of keeps the sword poked into his heart. Gross. Okay, so let's uh, leave John and White Sword for now and look at the, the rest of the main battle, where some cool things happen. Aura Serrata, who's that giant eye creature, uh, she approaches on a ship and figures she'll just do that thing where she looks at an enemy and removes them from existence, which is what we saw her do all the way back in that first appearance in Legion of X number one in the Circle Perilous. That was the whole god thing, make the god go away. So she's going to start with Roberto da Costa, Sunspot. Sunspot realizes what's happening and turns all hot and glowy. And you know what happens when you stare too hard at the sun, you burn your eye out. And also, Korra's there with him, and I guess she's amplifying his powers even further. Now, um, I would think that if Sunspot is getting amplified to the point where he's literally blindingly hot, then all those other people standing right next to him might be having kind of a rough time, you know, <laughs> extreme suntan situation. Yeah. Maybe he can direct all that power directionally forward. I guess that's what we got to go with. I never actually seen this power, so I was like, oh, that's interesting. It's, it's a cool idea. But yeah, well, we I always he, wonder. he turns glowy when he uses his power, so I think that just because he's getting amplified by Korra, that aspect of him just gets turned to 11. I didn't realize she was amplifying him. Interesting. I, I'm pretty sure that's what it is because she's next to him with her hand on his shoulder, and that's yeah. the thing that she can do. Yeah. So that's what I get. Okay, that's cool. That would explain to you why we haven't seen this so kind of thing So Serrata is now blind, taking her power off the table. Oh, she keeps bumbling around for a bit, like you know, Mr. Magoo, insisting that she's still the law of the land. We even get a Judge Dredd style, I am the law. Yeah. Little on the nose. Uh, she is found by the Fisher King, who you'll remember merged with Xylo after Xylo was badly hurt by Oranos. Fisher King didn't have a mutant weapon, didn't have a power. He says now he has one, one that's even stronger than the law, and that power being capital H history. That, that's that's kind of cool. I can go with that. That's, you know, philosophically law versus history. Go with it. I, I don't buy it. <laughs> don't buy it. Okay. Oh, wow. From my professional perspective, I disagree. <laughs> you think you think the law would be stronger than history? Well, we have a lot of cases where legal decisions have overridden historic precedent. I think that's a debate for a different podcast, but but words for thought. Uh, so Xylo flows, slithers, squirms off of the Fisher King, takes over Aura Serrata's body. I think Xylo does this mostly to claim Aura Serrata's authority, right? It kind of unites law and history. And actually, I mean, the power is not history, right? The power is maggoty worms that have, <laughs> you know, eaten half your body. So. It's, it's these two sources of authority, I think, rather than the power itself. Where Orishrata has the authority of I speak for the law, Xylo has the authority of I speak for history, history yeah. and bringing those together. So now taking the name, I guess it's Xylora, uh, this combined creature says, this war was fought on false law and false history. Let there be an end to this, which everybody listens, puts an end to the main battle, but 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 at what cost, Ruben? At, at what cost? Yes. Uh, Fisher King is dead. Uh, was was he injured before he merged with Xylo? I don't remember. Yeah, I don't either. Um, I'm going to have to look that up. 
I'm going to say yes, because otherwise this doesn't make any sense to me. Like, it's sort of insinuated that this was a plan, but how would you plan for this outcome exactly? Yeah, it in- I don't think it was exactly this plan, but I think the insinuation is that he knew when he merged with the Xylo that there was only one way out. That Xylo being symbiotic, parasitic with him was killing off half his body, and he was only staying alive once he was merged. Once Xylo leaves, he's dead, which is a bummer because he was a cool character, and I wanted to see more of him. Again, always it's always possible in these stories for a character to be resurrected, but this feels pretty final. It feels like an ending. It, it gives him a cool story arc, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to see him around some more. Okay, now that la- onto the last major strand of the story, Storm versus Genesis. And we knew it would have to come down to this, just like we knew Dark X-Men would have to come down to Goblin Queen versus Goblin Queen. So first first shot, Genesis attacks Storm using plants. It's it's not very effective. Storm just uses cold and pressure to get herself loose. And now they're really taking turns here. Storm strikes at Genesis using lightning, but Annihilation commands Storm to miss, which again, a thing Annihilation's been doing forever. She's a real pain. Storm has to miss, but she's able to miss the staff in a way that causes the lightning to hit the white sword. Feels kind of like a cheat. What exactly is this miss power? How much can you resist it? Who was she aiming for? It's it, This felt kind of vague, a little too cute. Am I being too picky? I thought she was aiming for the staff. Otherwise, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I guess so. So in any event, Genesis drops the white sword. Oh, yeah, sword. and she says, it, it just says something about directing her rage, making the staff her target. Okay. Yeah, so she was aiming for the staff. The staff got in her head and made her miss. She's not missing by much. I, I don't know. If, if I was that that staff, I would try to, you know, miss miss by 10 feet, not by, <laughs> you know, 18 inches, and yes. hit the piece of metal in the other hand of the person holding me. Yeah, fair enough. It's one of those other Morrison-type powers that exactly how it works seems seems kind of like don't don't think about it too hard. We get to the end, we find out the staff was kind of done with Genesis, right? So maybe maybe it was missing exactly the way it wanted it to miss, but didn't want Genesis to realize it was betraying her. Mm. Once again, Ruben, I like your version of the story better than the one in the book. I like it. Uh, so Genesis drops the white sword, which is how it automatically returns to its true master, how white sword got it back in that other scene. And while this is going on, there's a lot of verbal back and forth between the two. This is where Ewing really wants the whole philosophical end to pay off, with Genesis telling Storm that, oh, you've ruined Arako by making them making them weak, making them like you, making them forget their true strength. And Storm telling Genesis that this whole endless war deal she's into serves no purpose. So Genesis sounds a lot like pre-Krakoa apocalypse, which makes sense. Did you Did you find this philosophical side powerful? No, just kind of, kind, of, kind of wrote. Yeah, it didn't infuriate me, but I was just kind of like, okay, you haven't done enough to like make this really hit It didn't me. take it to it the next level. It felt like kind of more the same. So Genesis's next attack is to surround Storm with a glowing green Egyptian Eye of Ra kind of symbol, which is Genesis using her plant powers in a more subtle way. Uh, Genesis turns Storm's internal microflora against her which is a lot like the power of her daughter, Pestilence, right? So there's no big flashy plant attack, but Storm is you know, dying here because of internal problems. And this is when Annihilation speaks mentally to Storm. I think it's kind of a shame that this book came out the same week as Dark X-Men number five, because Annihilation's offer to Storm is not all that different from the Goblin Queen's offer to Madeline Pryor. It's kind of the same. I, we just read this. 
Annihilation says, you know, yeah, Genesis was useful to me, but she served a purpose. How about you and I ditch Genesis and we team up? I like this one a little bit better just because I understood what the staff was saying. And it kind of said some of the stuff I was joking about at some point in the past where everyone knows Genesis is just going to build some dumb towers and <laughs> hang out in the right. And it's the staff's like, I don't want to just sit in a siege for you know a thousand years. I'm out here to expand my evil influence. And Al Ewing has made Storm the most powerful of powerful characters. So it is clearly a trade up, almost like what's going on in Beast World, right? The spores want to go to a more and more powerful host. So this is what, what Annihilation wants to do. And the, the book is good in that it doesn't even make Storm pretend to consider the offer because we're not going to buy that. Uh, instead, Storm used the opportunity to know that Annihilation has not said the word miss. And so Storm has a giant bolt of lightning hit the staff, melting it and either destroying Annihilation or sending it back to the, quote, land beyond where it came from. I thought it was very, it was very cool. It almost was, and it was clever. And I, as a data page goes, I thought it was a nice data page. I almost feel like the moment needed another like situation where the staff said miss, either in prior issues or this issue. Just seeing it happen twice kind of was... The miss thing has happened before, including especially back at that, I think it was X-Men 13, where they had that confrontation at the Great Ring. Mm-hmm. That's oh, where the miss then, thing yeah. really got started. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's better then that it's happened multiple times. I didn't remember that specific mm-hmm. influence. Now, now, once again, this the the villain gets distracted by making an offer so the hero can kill the villain exactly like X-Men Dark. Yes. Well, let that be a lesson to you, uh, supervillains. Don't, don't ever try to waste your time getting heroes to join you, right? Don't just, make those speeches. Just be ruthless, Never good. right? Don't just be ruthless. Be like the bad kill guy at the kill. end of... Uh, Oh, what is the the Alan Moore thing? The Watchmen. You know, I I already did that. I, I'm making my speech now, but I already did the bad thing. And also, question: uh, the lands beyond is where Annihilation is supposed to now have from come. I thought Annihilation was native to a menth, but I guess this is Ewing saying it comes from somewhere else. Yeah, it comes from the bleed. It comes from the DCU. <laughs> oh, oh gosh. Yeah, exactly what Annihilation is. I think they're making that even vaguer than it started out. I think they just kind of want it to go away. Yeah. Or or maybe the menth is the lands beyond. I don't think so. I think it's supposed to go I think the idea is that Ge- uh, Annihilation was called to a menth by Genesis's need her desire for power. No, no, sorry. You're misreading. It's was a beacon calling me from a menth. Oh, I thought that the beacon was calling from a menth as I was called that as Annihilation I was called, was called to that dark from, world from so it's called to that dark world from the lands beyond. Okay, never mind. Yeah, I think you can read that both ways. It, something called it to a menth, and then Genesis called it from a menth to Earth when Genesis was unhappy about the piece that was on whatever I can't recall what it was before it was. But Genesis already had annihilation when she came to Earth. Maybe no, no, no. I, I think no. Anymore. This is I think this is talking about the oh, the pre the pre Genesis war. Yes, Okara. Yes, so I think they're saying basically. Originally, something brought it to a menth, and then Genesis's unhappiness with uh, the peace and stability is what called it to come to Earth. Okay, I, yeah, I think that actually makes more sense. I think I think that's probably what Ewing's getting at, but it is it is a little little confusing. So at this point, Laktuka, who is the big cosmicy character, declares that quote the debate is decided, which confused me for a second. But that's when I remembered back to issue thirteen 
back to Genesis' first appearing of the Great Ring. And that's when the debate between Storm and Genesis began. Also when the staff telling people Miss began. So if you remember that issue, there was various challenges going back and forth between Genesis and John Ironfire and Kobach Neverheld and Storm. And Lactuka interrupts the challenge by teleporting Storm and friends away. That's kind of how the whole this side versus that side got set up. So this battle is the conclusion of that challenge, and Lactuka declares that Storm wins that challenge for power, which I thought was pretty cool. Once once I figured out that's what was going on, is oh that's it concludes this thing that began five issues ago. I also laughed that the staff was so susceptible to lightning. <laughs> it's I mean, just... made of golden wood, that's what it says, yeah. Yeah, which is fine, right? Like it has got an evil spirit possessing it, so it's not invincible, but I just thought it was kind of funny. It's like I kind of would have thought it would have had more power, but it's all good. Nope. Last issue, page 16 to 24, bad guy's got to go away. Uh, I guess the defeat also means that Storm's microflora isn't attacking her anymore, even though that's still Genesis's power, not Annihilation. Maybe yeah. she got knocked out or something. Well, she was holding the staff, right? I'm assuming, I don't know, what a good conductor. I guess if it's a hits by lightning bolt, you probably, <laughs> probably flows into you as well. That area effect sort of a thing. Uh, or maybe somebody just gave uh, Storm several helpings of that special probiotic yogurt that Jamie Lee Curtis used to advertise, because that'll that'll fix your microflora too. So now we've again we've got a series of epilogues. We have SZA and Roberto mourning the fallen Fisher King. Me too. We have the White Sword back to his old self, making up with John Ironfire. He asks John, "Quote: Why didn't you do it?" Which I guess means, "Why didn't you kill me for real?" Is is yes. that what you think he means there? Yeah, why didn't you stick the uh, sword into my heart and let me die? And John says, quote, I trusted the storm. Now, there was a bit in Sins of Sinister, which is where he first met John Ironfire, where John is supposed to have this huge regret for something he did during the Genesis War, which at the time was a war we hadn't seen yet. That's where we first heard the term Genesis War, too. So I guess the regret in that timeline was that he killed the White Sword? Is that the implication? I didn't even think of that. That's That's pretty cool. I'm going to go. No, with I don't it. know exactly what is different about this timeline that made him trust Storm so much more. So I like the connection, the callback. I always like thinking of Sins of Sinister, but again, it it felt like it was supposed to be a bigger moment than it really worked out to be. Uh, back to those islands, the two islands that walk, stop fighting, and <sighs> in a fairly ridiculous <laughs> flash page, they they just hug it out. <laughs> you, you could you could change the words around it, and this could be like the Greco-Roman wrestling, but clearly here. You know the the sun's behind them, and and the calm, water is calm. They're they're just having a brotherly embrace. Uh, do you think Kaorak is going to get uh, be a separate entity going forward? Will he get his own you know council set of mutants, or is this just going to disappear and never to be mentioned again? <laughs> Probably the latter. It's going to disappear, and then um, oh gosh, who's our gosh? Who's writing Astonishing Iceman or Orlando? Right. Yes, yeah, Steve yeah, Orlando. So Steve Orlando will pick this up in like 20 years. <laughs> he does love these flashbacks to way, way back in history changing things. So maybe maybe he'll decide that K.O. Rack was around all the time. Yeah. He'll, he'll be writing a K.O. Rack uh, Great Ring story. <laughs> maybe that'll <laughs> be the next arc of the X-Men Unlimited web series. If people are like, what the hell's K.O. Rack? The other, the other <laughs> thought I had about this is, you know, we've we've heard some rumors that have said, you know, there won't be a Krakoa in the next era of X-Men. And I was like, it'd, be, it'd yeah. be so freaking hilarious if like 
the KORAC era. Just, yeah, they're just on KORAC. <laughs> That's why you don't see <laughs> Krakoa still lobotomized. We need to go on to his other brother. Yeah, but it's exactly the same series, right? Everyone, I think, is <laughs> hoping for something different. You just do a you know find and replace on Rakoa for KOF. Yeah, yeah, they're having yeah, parties. Cool Could be worse. In resurrection, it'll be hundred percent the same. <laughs> so Apocalypse comes in, he makes a victory speech, and Storm gives us a bit of exposition on the new Iraqi status quo. Iska's still in the mountains, the Vile are still in their stronghold. We haven't seen them. I want to see the Vile again. Sobanar is hiding in the ocean. Because he had been very much on the Genesis side of things. Orc, who is that Amenthi demon little thing who was hanging around with Apocalypse, he claims a territory for the Amenthi demons there on Mars, which could be interesting. Yeah, I didn't understand why he needed that. I thought just send him back to his world, but I guess he wants his own place. I get the feeling that Amenth is not a really fun place to live. So I wouldn't want to go back there. Maybe Mars is a nicer neighborhood. So Storm then says something that I don't really follow. She says, quote, becoming Blood Dawn will help release tensions, and Blood Dawn being capitalized, bold, and italics. So what is this Blood Dawn? I haven't even seen any previews using that word as far as I can recall. Yeah, the only thing I took of this was like the idea of what she did with Genesis. I think that's what she was referring to. It's a new Dawn is always like a new a new status, right? Mm-hmm. And I think Mars he puts, is red, red blood, new birth of Mars. Eh, well, and he sends, she sends Genesis to, what is it, Phobos? Yeah. Yes. To like basically slaughter all the Iraqi, or not yep. the Iraqi, the Orcus people that are up on Phobos. And I'm assuming- um, Maybe Blood Dawn is her term for attacking Orcus back on Earth? Yeah, maybe. It just seems like such a specific phrase that's called out in the lettering so strongly I feel like I should recognize it, and I just don't. So maybe it'll be a thing going forward. I guess you're right. Maybe Operation Blood Dawn. That's the name of the Take It to the Orchestra. That sounds very 90s, doesn't it? That sounds like a, a Rob Liefeld kind of a thing. Operation Blood Dawn. So we then pop off to that place where Genesis has been exiled, which is Phobos, the moon of Mars that had been claimed by Phalong and then used an Orcus base. Genesis is there with two of her children, War and Famine, because Pestilence is dead. Death is had gone over to Stormside, so these are the two that are still loyal to Mom. She's on a throne made of vines, and those vines have killed a whole lot of Orcus goons. Yeah, I'm assuming Phelan was not on. <laughs> yeah, we haven't really seen much of this base in kind of a long time. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think Phobos was just there to kind of keep an eye on Mars, eye on Araco. So I, I guess the idea is that it was mostly just nameless, faceless goons there. So we'll be curious to see how Orcus responds to this, because that will probably be part of the whole fall of the House of X, you know, attack from Mars onto Earth, Tony Stark. Phobos is going to be in there somewhere, I would think, maybe. But it also feels like Genesis's story is done. So I don't know that we'll see Genesis in that. So maybe this is just Ewing parking Genesis somewhere that down the road another writer could pick her up if they feel like it. Probably more well, likely she that. Could, she could build some towers. Here. She loves those towers. It is kind of cool to see that uh, uh, Nightcrawler corpse still hanging around in the background on Phobos. I don't see why they keep that, but it's fine. It's like the giant penny in Batman's cave in the, in the dinosaur, right? It's just the thing that's there. Okay, so wrapping up, the Yildare Chinar art is quite good. Uh I, again, I was looking back at the older issues of this when uh, – who was the original artist for this? 
there was uh, began with a C. Uh, anyway, the, the the art for this this book has always been really good. Uh, maybe this isn't quite as good as the first part, but but still he he does he does a nice job. You know, the hug between islands looks really silly. I can't blame that as the artist. It's just a silly idea. The one panel, the two islands fighting, looks pretty badass. Really conveying the size and mass of the combatants, so that's cool. Steve Stefano Castelli was the original. Oh yes, Castelli. That was that was amazing art. That was some of my favorite art I've seen in Marvel for a while. So this this is still good. Uh, the story again, acknowledging my own problem with endings. Uh, the fight between Storm and Genesis, Annihilation offering to save Storm. There's you know like a a B minus kind of a final plot twist. Got the job done. Wasn't spectacular. Wasn't surprising. Didn't feel like it lived up to the the biggest moments of the series. I mean, the ending of a series should be kind of its biggest moment. Again, my own hopes and expectations working against me. Uh, bummed not to get anything with Abigail Brand. And what is up with, with Nova, Richard Ryder? Is he still alive? <laughs> he was getting some treatment, so... He was getting treatments, but he was like on the verge of death. It would have been nice to get one panel of him. Yeah. Again, maybe he'll show up in Resurrection. I, I could see Nova being part of like the final conflict, though, right? Wouldn't shock me to see him. Certainly could be. He's a, he's a kind of character that Al Ewing likes to like do things with. But yeah, it would have been just just put him in the background of one panel, you know, walking around on a a crutch or something. That oh, he's he's on the mend. Would be nice to see. So this wasn't a bad issue, just not as great as I had hoped an Al Ewing finale would be. Still be reading Resurrection of Magneto, of course, and so maybe that'll give me some more of this closure. Final score for this issue. Hmm. How about a 7.3 out of 10? I, I was going to 7.5, solid 7.5. 7.5, okay. T- tiny bit more positive for both of these issues. Endings are tough. Like you said, art's great. Some of the fight stuff I thought was like, oh, that's actually pretty pretty awesome. There were a few things that you flagged that I missed, right? Like um, the hand on the shoulder powering up sunspot the connections back to the uh the first meeting of storm and genesis back yeah in 13. yeah I enjoyed stuff, that. like it raises my opinion of of this and uh the as much as the two islands just hugging it out thing just like made me roll my eyes and just like that's so you know 2020 comics <laughs> where it's just like a kumbaya moment resolves a bunch of conflict um there was actually a fight that resolved it right storm did win and yes so it and it wasn't like a you know, the the hug is sort of after the main fight is over, right? It's not like yeah, that's at, how at they that solved point, everything. there's no reason for the islands to be fighting anymore, so yeah. it, it's fine. Yeah, so I was okay with it, although I just making a splash page just kind of was like, ah. but yeah, no, I thought it was I thought it was fun. I enjoyed X Men Red the the entire time, and uh, I continue to have a much higher opinion of Al Ewing than Jim does, and I'll continue to read the stories that he writes. I've been seeing some speculation and, and fan forums and things that people thought that Al Ewing might have expected to have like five or six more issues, and at some point maybe the ending of the Krakoan era was pushed up and he had to compress things. Wouldn't shock me since they certainly possible knew the Brevoort stuff yeah. probably changed a lot of uh, plans for these writers. Could be, but I mean, we can only judge what's actually in the book and not you know what he would have done. That's again me being oh it's not done yet. I can speculate on whatever it could be. And of course, whatever we speculate on our head is going to be better than actual reality most of the time. I am I am very curious about um, the status of Mars. Like, I really did think they do like a reset on that. And at least yeah. as of this issue, instead of saying like, yeah, let's leave Mars or go do something else. It's like, no, we're going to double down on that. And we're even going to have more factions on Mars with a little sub basis. And I actually thought the Iraqi would be kind of done after the series was over and instead 
you know, a few of them are dead, but yeah, if as far gonna, as we can tell, they're if still If they're going to put all those around. toys away, if they're going to push the reset button, that'll have to be probably in, you know, Fothox, Rotpox, yeah. or, or Resurrection of Magneto. Bring out Uranus and he just kills everyone. <laughs> just so curious how they're going to, how much of this is going to be still continuing into the next status quo and how much of this is going to be let's pretend it never happened. It really could go either way. Unrelated, but sort of related. I was reading um, last issue of Guardians of the Galaxy, the latest one, and they're still talking about the Atari, which I thought, you know, and living up on Moon. And I really thought that that was done too. So maybe this view of like, this is all part of like the Marvel Cosmic stuff and they don't want to delete it, right? They want to keep this complexity. Could be. And I do know, I haven't read Al Ewing's latest issue or two of Thor, but I do know that there are some tie-ins with Storm there. I, I hear people saying that tie-in is cool, and we know Al Ewing loves his continuity. So if you want to see Al Ewing doing some more continuity stuff, probably, I should probably go and check out those books too. And I, another thing about Guardians, just to make you laugh, um, loose X-Men tie-in, they have a bunch of Mysterium. <laughs> uh, Mysterium? That, maybe yeah, that'll be it. the real legacy of this whole Krakoan era, is Mysterium yeah. still hanging around in the Marvel Universe for years to come. Yeah, they decided as the power to uh, absorb Infinity Stone energy, which I was like, sure, why not? It could do anything. That thing it's is ma- can absorb heat, magic, Infinity Stone energy. Sure, and it's easy enough for Tony Stark to mold into anything he wants, right? As long as he has that one fabrication machine that he stole, that's that's all you need. Yeah, <laughs> that is our show for this week. Just the two books, but if you do have the Marvel app. Go ahead and get caught up on X-Men Unlimited. The Firestar arc there just ended. She winds up in a pretty interesting position. She's kind of moving up the ranks of Orcus. So she, I think, is going to be a pretty major player going forward, probably in the X-Men title. So check her out. Uh, and speaking of the things coming soon, here are the books coming out next week. On our final Weird Dose of X for 2023, we'll be discussing... Astonishing Iceman number 5 of 5, Uncanny Avengers number 5 of 5, Wolverine number 40, which is a Spidey team-up, continuous is a team-up things, and other books of interest next week will be Uncanny Spider-Man number 5 of 5, which I'll be finishing up with Jim on the main Marvel show, I expect. Also, Gods number 3, I'll read that for sure. And there's a book called Original X-Men number 1. Have you seen that solicit at all? Any idea what I'm talking about? It's a Christos Gage uh, book. And the solicit says that's an adventure set back in the Stan and Jack days of the original five, but also claims to be a multiversal thing that it promises will, of course, have huge implications for the current 616. I don't know if I believe that solicit, but if it turns out to be true, you will hear about it here. And that's all I have to say for this week. So, uh, Ruben, do you have any last words of wisdom for our loyal listeners? With all your free time with Christmas break, stop taking care of your kids and read more X-Men comics.